0: After four years of Trump, um, do you think he did more good for the country or bad, especially after the January 6th insurrection that happened?
1: I mean, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think it was an insurrection because I think an insurrection is an attempt to overthrow the government by violent means. And none of the people who were arrested even were armed inside the Capitol. So I think that's an example of a misuse of language to shut down discussion. Uh, more than to open up discussion. Welcome
0: back to Gen Z Speaks. Our guest today is Professor Scott Soames. Professor Scott Soames is a professor of philosophy at USC where he chairs the department. He's a graduate of Stanford University where he received his degree in philosophy. Then he went on to MIT where he received his PhD in linguistics and philosophy. And he formerly taught at Princeton University from 1980 to 2004 and he's been teaching uh, at USC since 2004. Professor Scott Soames is the author of numerous books. Uh, his recent books include The World Philosophy Made, uh, in addition to a couple others. We're so happy to have you, Professor. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So my first question to you is, you know, you've had a prolific career in philosophy. And in the current day and age, um, why do you think philosophy
1: matters and why, what is the importance of philosophy to you? I think um, the importance of philosophy today is pretty much the same as uh, it's always been. There are periods of time in which it's more important than others um, because of the nature of the societies at that time, but the basic aspirations of philosophy, I think remain um, constant and they have remained constant for over 2000 years in the West. Uh, That's a long time. Um, One of the main aims has always been since ancient Greek philosophy to contribute to the foundations of theoretical knowledge of absolutely all kinds and you will realize that if you go back and read Aristotle and see what he has to say about logic, about physics, about biology, about political science, about rhetoric and the rest and if you go up through the centuries you will see similar things of that kind sometimes from pure philosophers, sometimes from people who are combinations of philosophers and scientists. Galileo was one of the latter. He, of course, was a great astronomer. Uh, he discovered also laws of acceleration, uh, and, but he also developed a comprehensive philosophical conception of nature. And then you go beyond him, you get to Descartes, um, He was both a mathematician and a philosopher. He gave us the foundations of analytic geometry. Um, He developed hypotheses about um, biology, um, mechanistic hypotheses. And then of course, in in the dialogues, he contrasted all that with the mysteries of human consciousness and human reason. Uh, And you you just go on and on. take, go to to the UK. Um, David Hume was among many other things, a precursor to Darwin. In fact, Darwin's grandfather was his student and uh, who read all his books and gave them to his grandson, Charles, uh, with the admonition that he read them. And if you compare certain parts of Hume's dialogues on natural religion with um, Darwin's evolutionary theory, you'll see the seeds of the ideas. Some of them were right there. Uh, Who else did we have at that time? Good friend of David Hume, Adam Smith. You think of Adam Smith as the founder of modern economics. Well, he was the founder of modern or one of them. But he also was the holder of the chair in Moral Science and Moral Philosophy at Glasgow University, and he wrote prodigiously uh, on that subject. You keep moving forward, and you get to a mathematician in the mid to late 19th century, Gottlieb Frege, who was interested in a philosophical questions. What are numbers and how do we arrive at knowledge of them? Those are, those are philosophical questions. So what did he do in response? A variety of things. He developed modern symbolic logic. Then Bertrand Russell followed in his footsteps. Then we had a set in the 1920s and 1930s of philosophical logicians, uh, Girdle uh, Tars- Tarski and Church. And then Alan Turing. Um, all more or less uh, in collaboration with each other, develop mathematical theories of computational functions that led directly to the first computers, uh, and hence to the digital age. You get to uh, say probability and rational decision theory. They were thought up by Frank Ramsey, uh, a young philosopher uh, in the late 1920s, and by my colleague at Princeton, Dick Jeffrey, who taught for decades um, and helped founded subjective probability theory. So that's one just set of things contributing to the foundations of theoretical knowledge. And we could go further. We could talk about other scientific disciplines, physics and the like, but that just gives you an idea. Now this enterprise of developing theories of the world and also of ourselves, it's not gonna stop. And the discipline that has made these kinds of contributions will continue to make them. So there's nothing special in that respect about this day and age. Um, philosophers will continue to do that and, and they're doing that now. Now-
2: oh, go, go ahead, ahead, professor. No, go ahead. Okay, okay. So um, I've taken back, well, I'm in college still, right? But I took a few philosophy courses, majority of them were ethics courses. Um, yeah. And it just seems as if that the origin of philosophy was kind of, uh, say, a, a, a sense of knowledge of everything. And philosophers really wanted to just from the beginning, they wanted to know about everything, not just linguistics, but as you're saying, mathematics, physics, and you know, the re- the question has always been always will be why. And so it just seems that, you know, progressively, it, it's become philosophers have become less and less concerned with the knowledge of all and to be pretty sufficient at everything and more towards linguistics and more towards why as to uh why we the way we speak, why do we speak a certain way and you know such as that. Why do you think it the progressive change has become to that? And why have things become so specialized? Like now there's physics and now there's mathematics. And if you do mathematics, you're not doing anything else. So I I was just wondering as to why do you think the progressive change has well, like I'll
1: tell you, um, specialization is one thing. What you mentioned as language and linguistics, that's a different thing, and that that's progressing in somewhat the same spirit, but it got off track in the mid-20th century and tried to swallow up philosophy itself for about uh, three or four decades, and uh, it failed, and, and we now just see it as another area of inquiry that we That challenges us like the rest. But specialization, just think about it. Um, I hired a few years ago a philosopher of physics, the guy who started philosophy and physics at Oxford University, Uh, and he came to USC for a few years. Now, fortunately, somebody else has uh, stolen him away from us. But he had, and what you have to have, if you're working in philosophy and physics today is you have to have two PhDs. You have to have a PhD in philosophy and you have to have a PhD in physics. I have a friend at Princeton who was my colleague who had both. Um, this, that's how it is if you're going to work at that level. You have to be able to interact with the most specialized theoretical physicists, but you also have to be able to try and put that into a larger perspective that is not always the perspective of the individual physicists. And that's what happens in these disciplines. Now we have philosophy and economics. We have a subject that I'm, one of my fields is philosophy of language. And the real scientific study of language has only gotten going during my adult lifetime. And basically what's happened is at least in one or two particular subdomains, namely semantics and pragmatics, meaning basically and communication, philosophers have provided and continue to provide the theoretical framework for that. But you can't just do it by reading the great books in philosophy. You've You've got to study the developing scientific theory at the same time. And any individual person can only do so much of that. You can't have, and I don't think we'll ever again see these large philosophical theories of everything uh, of the kind that we saw in the distant past. We will see individual philosophers and groups of philosophers producing pictures of different areas of life, of knowledge, of reality, of ethics and the like, but they'll be overlapping pictures. They won't be one big picture. Um, That's a change all right, but we're still heading in the same direction. It just takes more time, effort and specialization to put together the different parts of the big picture that we're not constructing individually anymore. We're trying to construct it collectively.
3: Right, right. We're trying to split the work apart in a sense. Yeah. um, You know, Professor, you mentioned that a lot of these great inventors, these great uh, scientists are, were in a sense philosophers as well. Yeah. And, um, I want to know how. How does just a regular person, or you know, some? For let's take example me. I'm I'm a computer science student, and Good. I I want to get into philosophy, right? I I enjoy philosophy. I enjoy uh reading books about philosophy. How, but you know, there's so many different subfields and so many different That's specializations right. of philosophy. It's hard to really understand. Like, hey, what should I read or what should I do, uh, to kind of learn? Um, do you have like a you know something to say to people? Uh, or, or some sort of uh, guidelines to follow to, you know, uh, really learn philosophy in a sense.
1: I just was asked by a guy who puts together collections of things, and their collections called the five best books in. Uh, and he asked me if I wanted to do something and if I did what would my topic be and it was my topic was the five best books for learning western philosophy what it is and how to do it yourself. Wow (laughs) perfect (laughs) question. (laughs) And if you go to my website, um, which just, just you know put in Google, put my name and put USC and I'll take you to my website and you will find the link to that. And so in addition to my choices for the five best books uh, at the beginning, because that was part of the way this, this guy sets up this site, there's a section say, that's basically, why should I listen to this guy about what are the five best? So I, I write down a little bit about myself and I, I preview uh, my, my most recent book, The World Philosophy Made. And if you pick that up and you, and you get it and you can read through, you don't have to read it all straight, straight through at one sitting, but it will connect philosophy to all the other things that were going on at the various times and right up to today. So you've got to start, you can't just read the old texts and get a sense of where it's all going. You have got to read philosophy interacting with something else. And the something else can be a theoretical discipline. It can be computer science. It can be rational decision theory, subjective probability. It can be any of these things. It can be symbolic logic because some of my chapters are about those things. Uh, But it's a combination of thinking about those things and learning a little bit about them and how they relate to larger philosophical questions. That's what we need to do. We need to answer your question. If philosophy is going to become meaningful and accessible to the people that need it today.
2: So, okay, so kind of piggybacking off of that, uh, th- through like my discussions with friends and just colleagues and you know, students in general, um, when I ever discuss philosophy, they always ask, huh, I've always been interested, but where do I start? There's so much. And so personally for me, like I have always discussed um, either platonic dualism and I'll tell them to go ahead and research that and kind of go into depth about big T truth and you know big F form and why, right? And, but I'll also tell them to discuss ethics and because I think ethics plays the biggest part in an average person's life. And, you know, why do I do certain things? And if I do this, is it important to me? And so my question to you is, Do you, for the average Joe, for the average student, what uh, specific topic would help them become a better person if they're just interested person.
1: in, yes. Well, I think studying morality and asking questions about the source of morality, not just what actions should you perform, but what's the whole enterprise of morality about? And how does it arise? Is it just a set of individual preferences that some people agree with and other people don't agree with? Is it something written into the nature of the universe? Well, it's hard to see how that would be. Or is it something about human nature? Something about the nature of the human species that has evolved over time And one of the things when you take that perspective, one of the things that you find out and it it just jumps out at you is that we are born to be highly social animals. We are always interacting with each other Uh, and there are successful forms of interacting and there are less successful forms of interacting. really what's happening is we have a certain biological basis which allows us to form attachments in which we care deeply about others. But initially those attachments are just to the near and dear. And to step beyond that, we need the right kinds of social institutions so that people can interact in a voluntary way And if they coordinate, everybody will be better off than before. And moreover, we have to want to coordinate, not just to get more stuff ourselves, but because we actually like the people we're interacting with. We don't wanna let them down. We don't want them to think badly about us. And you start looking into the basis of morality in human biology, psychology, and sociology that I think is where progress is made. And I try to say something about that in the last two chapters of my book.
0: You touched on something I think that's important about social institutions. And um, you know, I think, like Matt was saying about the importance of studying morality and ethics, gives you an understanding of your role in the interaction with social institutions, whether they be political, economic, etc. Um, you know, transitioning into our current world today, specifically in the in the United States, our political infrastructure. Do you think, uh, you know, those in power embody those basic fundamental principles of morality and ethics? Obviously, our country was founded upon some of these principles, but you know, obviously, our, our past is uh, our past isn't completely moral or ethic, right? I mean, we have been through a lot as a country, and you know, we started off with a sin of slavery, but but in, in this current day and age, do you have a more optimistic perspective of those in power you know, using these basic tenets uh, of morality and ethics?
1: I think we're facing a real crisis. Um, and I don't think the United States is the only country that is facing a real crisis. I think basically all of Western Europe Uh, some countries more than others, like right now, France is in a crisis about as severe as we are. Uh, Italy is deeply divided. Um, The UK is struggling along and and trying to adapt to a world in which there is a divide in the UK. There is a divide between those you might call the elite or the well-off and those that are you know, not they're working class, a lot of working class people. And there's a very sharp divide between these two groups and British politics is being roiled by this divide. It doesn't quite know what to do with it. And we have a similar and quite severe problem. You go down, you look at perhaps the most advanced country in Latin America, Chile. Is deeply divided between left and right right now, uh, and Peru, which for three decades had been making good progress, is in a in, is in a real decline now. Why, and and what's to be done about it? Let well, let's go back to what we're more familiar with: the United States. Um, you look at Statistics like working class wages since maybe 1975 to 2015, basically stagnant. Um, And you look at our historical rate of growth, but then compare it to the rate of growth we've had since 2000, very subpar. Um, You look at concentrations of really enormous wealth uh, that uh, can sometimes be used for not supporting but even kind of undermining democratic processes. Uh, These are real problems. Look at colleges. We have far more educated people, college educated people than we have ever had before but we don't have the institutions to satisfy the expectations of those people and when they spend four years and a lot of money in school and go out and can find very little that would match their expectations it creates real problems. Um, But I guess another thing I've probably got to say is we have made, go back 150 years, we have made such spectacular progress in what? In science, in wealth, in technology, in health, in longevity, in all of these respects, we're living in heaven right now compared to where people were living then. But you know what? We've come so far, we've come so fast, we've alleviated so many problems that people are bewildered. What's next? What's the next frontier? What can I contribute to? And moreover, they're confused. They're confused because so many of the patterns of human life from marriage and the family to the community and where you work and all of that and having lifelong friends uh, throughout your life, those were reinforced by the conditions of life back then. We've changed those conditions. We don't know what marriage is anymore. We don't know what family is anymore. We don't know what the role of these central things are anymore. So it's a very perplexing time. It's a perplexing time because look at this. What are human beings? We are this species of animal that evolved on earth. We, We have great energy and we have been bred to be terrific problem solvers especially when confronted with existential crises about ourselves and those who are near and dearest. We're terrific at that. Hey, those kinds of crises are not, are not facing me. They're not facing you. We have a more collective a communal crisis and we've kind of lost our bearings.
0: Professor, there's a lot to unpack there. What you said. I think you, you touched on a couple important points Going back to the point about, uh, you know, wages for, for working class Americans being stagnant since the 1980s, right? And, and, the, and the wealth disparity has just, just increased. Like you said, you know, we, we live in a golden age for some, but for others, you know, things haven't really changed. And a lot, there's a lot of systemic problems in our country that can be attributed to that. In your mind, in regards to the economic question, why do you think there is such a wide, you know, wealth inequality gap in the country and do you think that's a natural result of just you know, the way uh, capitalism works, and our system works? Or do you think uh, you know, government institutions have ignored the concerns of working class Americans?
1: Well, I think they've largely ignored uh, the concerns for working class Americans. Um, you, know, you look at the median income, uh, the change in the median income, household income, during uh, George W. Bush's eight years, I'm, I'm not blaming any particular politician. <laughs> it's, it's much deeper. Uh, it was something like $50 more after eight years and in adjusted income. You look at Barack Obama's eight years, it was something like $125 more after eight years. This is not America's historical pattern. Now you know, in the first three years that Trump was in office, the median income went up $5,000. Of course, after that, we're in big trouble again. We were in trouble in the fourth year. We're in trouble now. Um, now, how is it going to sort out? I'm not. I'm not wise enough or expert enough to know. But I know we should be aiming to enrich the lives of those people or not to not that's the wrong way of putting it to get out of the way and let them enrich their lives in the way that they feel fit and and give them the opportunities to do that that had been for a long time the hallmark of America whether it still is or can be brought back I wish I could tell you I think
0: in my mind, um, what I personally attribute uh, our economic struggles to is going back to the years of, of Ronald Reagan and even kind of before where we, we had this mentality of prioritizing, in my mind, the interests of businesses, right, without any repercussions for the working class Americans. For instance, right, I mean, you mentioned how both Democratic and Republican governments have Kind of ignore the effects of trade deals, right? And how we uh, how we operate.
1: No, I, I'm I'm with you on that.
0: Right, right, and I think um, oftentimes because businesses have more influence in politics, right? They have more of a voice, so their concerns, uh, you know, get to be heard more. And obviously, they've got the big bucks, so. If you're a politician running for office, you're obviously going to give more of your time of the day to someone who's contributing more to your campaign, right, than the average person who's not contributing. In my mind, I think it's also a lack of innovation in politics where, in my mind, at least on a federal level, right, I feel like there's a lot of people running for Congress who are kind of doing it for themselves, right, for their own career and ambition, and not so much for, to, to further the interests of the constituents they represent. I mean, they do some projects here and there to say, look, this is what I did, or, or they kind of blame that our country's so divided, it's not my fault. So, if, it, if it's not, I mean, obviously, like you said, there's not one person to blame here or one administration, but as a country, right, where do we move forward in terms of dealing with this crisis and, and, and other crises where? a lot of Americans, they're just tired uh, of the way politics currently works. And and they refuse to be part of the system. I mean, only 60% of people usually vote in elections. And in midterm elections, it's like 30 to 40%. So what, what in your mind, is a potential way to remedy some of these problems?
1: I wish I could tell you a remedy. I can't sit here and tell you a remedy. That is really (laughs) beyond right anything that i can do but i do think you, you talked about the trade deals and all that you know economics will tell you that it's fine to have an imbalance of trade mm-hmm. because it'll just mean that each country is doing whatever it is that it does relatively better than the other country does. And everybody will end up being better off. That's the classic defense of free trade. And it's not like I'm a big enemy of free trade or anything like that. But economies are not countries. Countries have economies and economic forces are, are Intertwined with cultural and social forces. And sometimes you have to protect different groups of people that are valued parts of your country and that have helped build your country, even if they don't they can't learn to code. Uh, and <laughs> they still have a lot to offer. They offered a lot in the past. And we got to find, I guess, you know, we're all people who are educated quite highly. We have to find ways of seeing them, of portraying them, of writing about them, of interacting with them, which brings all of that out so that there's not a sense of us versus them. Uh, And I think, those of us who are better off and more highly educated, we have a bit of an obligation to go out of our way uh, to try and, try and bridge that divide. And I'm, I'm very concerned that the federal bureaucracy doesn't seem to care about this.
0: Right, I think part of the problem is like you said that this isn't just a trend in the United States; it's in other countries, right? We see the rise of populism in countries like the United Kingdom, among others. And, and I think one common trend that I see here is that, like I said, going back to my point before about politicians, I, in my in my again, this is my opinion. I think that a lot of people who are just craving for power, you know, use these frustrations uh, to just you know further themselves. So in my mind, that was. You can attribute that candidacy to to Donald Trump and what he promised people, right? I mean, there's stuff to be said about what he actually did in, in government, but I feel like he did more harm to our country and the world as a whole, but only because he, you know, used the frustrations of people to his own benefit. And we didn't really see systemic change in terms of the economic inequality. If you look at his tax cuts that they primarily benefited. Corporations and, and for middle-class Americans, these tax cuts were very minimal compared to, you know, companies like Amazon, et cetera. So, how much of this
1: blame? Well, you're neglecting you know, wages. You're neglecting the, the the figures I gave you about median household income, and you're neglecting the fact that in the last couple of years, the increases in the income of the bottom 25% were higher than in the top 10%.
0: But I mean, what policy of Donald Trump do you attribute that? Oh,
1: I don't know. I don't know. I know it wasn't happening before and it did happen then. I don't know what caused it. I I may be cutting a lot of regulations, which apparently his people did.
0: I think the problem with his administration to me was, I mean, obviously he left a country. I think he left after he left office. I mean, if you look at when he took office and after he left office, I think the country was worse off. Right? I mean, we we, we had five hundred to four hundred thousand COVID cases and the economic repercussions of that. I mean, don't get me wrong, he did do some good stuff. You know, I mean, in terms of. You know, working with Democrats in March of 2020 to pass a stimulus check, which I think helped the economy. I give him credit for that. But I think as a whole, because my my point, my, my larger point here is it seemed to me that he was there in office for himself. Right. And he's always been a guy who doesn't really know much, but pretends to. Right. And uh, a lot of people were attracted to his personality. And what he talked about, I'll give him credit, you know, he, he was the guy who started talking about trade deals and, you know, uh, the working class plight. And I think a lot of people gravitated to that, like you said. But I also think that he, because he was there for himself, right, we didn't really see real change. And he ended up kind of, you know, you know, continuing on the old Republican, neoconservative policies that I think have led to our economic disparity. Let me know if you disagree or agree with that with that take.
1: Yeah, I think you're concentrating too much on policies, politics and personalities and not enough on the actual institutional arrangements that aren't always a function of a new federal policy or a new, trade deal. Um, And I would like to see more federalism. I would like to see the individual states decide, okay, let California, I'm going to decide we're going to do this. Let South Dakota decide I'm going to do that. Um, And let Utah and Nevada and Arizona make their own decisions. And I'd like to see if some of this works better than, than others. I think the idea that everything goes to Washington, D.C. is is more of a problem at this point than a solution. Right. So in terms of what you were talking about,
2: like federalism, right? So kind of piggybacking of what you said prior to Ibrahim's question, um, you were talking about how. Um, you know it's us versus them and I think that's the biggest thing right now and I don't I just 100% agree with you that people don't see it they see it as us versus them and they don't see as a unity or there should be that there should be a bridge and so it seems like progressively again progressively it's just the divide has become more and more um, disparity right so what would you say that the government should do to kind of kind of bridge that and and talk to the citizens like this is not okay that there's people going completely head on against each other as if we're in like a cold civil war. And so I don't, I don't see it as uh, benefiting us. I don't see it as advancing us as a nation. Um, I do believe there needs to be a bridge. I just don't know when or why uh, politicians don't address it and when they will address it. What do you, what do you think on that?
1: Well, somehow it's not in their interest. Um, And We got to find a way of changing that. We have too much concentration of power. We have, um, you know, the new tech giants, they have too much power. That they should be treated as common carriers. And they should be subject to more competition and more regulation. That I think is, is part of the story. The individual states should be allowed to go their own way as they did to some degree in the COVID situation. You have New York versus Florida. Well, they got different results. They had different policies. They got different results. We have California versus South Dakota. Well, they're very different places. Uh, But they also got different results. And fine, if people need to move to the places that are getting the better results, more power to them. Um, I think I think the idea that we're gonna solve everything at the federal level, I just don't see it. I don't see it under any party. I don't see it under any president. And the Congress seems to be extremely limp and unable to do much of anything. And that's been so for 20 years.
2: Yeah, exactly. So
1: how I see it is I
2: attribute you know, the divide to media pluralism and in that, you know, we have a CNN and then we have Fox news and it's like, there's no, there's no middle ground. And so what people have to do is, or what me and my my buddies here try to do is we dissect information from every side and we just take the information out and try to be objective with it. Right. And the problem is that the average person does not want to dissect information. They want to hear it and they want it to be, you know, truth. And so what can we do to so we, we had a professor um, on the podcast, Professor Lessig, and his his solution was that we should utilize these platforms such as podcasts, such as comedy, in order to bridge that that divide. Because, it, it, you know, in the media realm is just everything is so drastic because of the numbers, you know, people want uh, more drastic uh information they want something that that seems more out of the ordinary than the truth and so his solution was we should use podcasts like this you know speak to different people and you know people can give their two cents and not just listen to these you know new sources what do you think we should do about this media pluralism
1: well look i think i think that's part of the answer um but of course it's only part of the answer and um You know I do the same thing you do, the first thing I get up in the morning I spend an hour and a half uh, looking around different sites and and reading and uh, before I even get down to work. Um, Most people don't have that much, maybe time and energy to do that, but for those who do yes it's very valuable we would be lost if we didn't have that at this point, no doubt about it, but. Let me ask you another thing. What do you think the role of colleges and universities is and what do you think it should be? Are, the, are, you, are you pleased with what you see? Are you wishing it were a little different or what?
2: Yeah, personally, I don't think I'm happy with what we're getting. I think a lot of people aren't happy with what we're getting. It just seems things are very one-sided. When you go to a college, you know whether it's going to be a conservative or liberal college before you go. And it just seems like a lot of professors will either stray towards that path, right? And nonetheless, it's like information is is just one side and it's just bias versus it being straight information. And it just seems that this has been increasingly, increasingly uh, adapted into the education system. And I think that's really penalizing a lot of uh, students and a lot of adults in general, because they're not receiving, it's like they're not receiving information to decide for themselves where they want to be. It's like information is being fed to them and being told to them where they should be.
1: So if you could start a new college and you had, you know, $10 billion to start a new college, you had an endowment, Uh, Hey, there are plenty of people out there who have $10 billion and maybe you can convince one. Right. Um, <laughs> what would you do? I I honestly believe it should be very objective.
2: It should be, you know, this is where we are. This is the information we've received in the past. Um, the information we received in the past is of course bias um, has, has a biased taste to it, but this is where we are. And this is why, and just allow the students to kind of go ahead and, dissect the information because you know in reality we all come from different experiences we all come from different lifestyles right and so that kind of uh changes our opinions and our uh, our truth basically so i think that professors should be there just to give us our information and answer questions as to what we are confused about or what we think should be different and instead of feeding us information and because i've had professors in the past who have been very cynical with certain things. And I don't think that cynicism should have been there. Or no, what's they, your major? I'm a business admin major, yeah. And, and so especially in some of my philosophy courses, it, it's like- Don't tell me that, to... I'm the chairman. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move away from that a little bit, but I'll take another example. No, I, I would group.
1: like to know about your philosophy courses, but not by name or anything.
2: Right, okay. So, okay, in one of my ethics courses, uh, the professor was quite um, one-sided with things, and I didn't think that that was the best way to do it. I, I know ethics is typic- typically, it's a one-way thing, right? This is right, and this is why it's right. But in my opinion, I think that everybody makes a decision based on how they feel, and I think that if they're capable of rationalizing it out, whether it's right or wrong, that could be
1: their truth. So you're thinking that a professor should help a person articulate his or her value, put them in the form of stateable propositions and arguments. And then when the arguments are out there, people could say, well, it seems to have this strength, or maybe this is an objection and and uh, let a hundred flowers bloom.
2: It, well, essentially. <laughs>
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, let, let, let's let course an inside? upper division course or a lower division course? Uh it's an upper division. I
2: see. I, I think yeah. going going back to your
0: point, Professor, about um, uh, you know, colleges and, and what why they're so important, I think what's happened in the country is that um in my and again this is my opinion only. I think there's so much bureaucracy in colleges that, um, Whoa, that is true. Let me tell you, it drives me crazy. <laughs> exactly. I mean, <laughs> it's, it, in my mind, that's a lot. That's part of the reason why college is so expensive, right. Is because oh, it is. universities continue to hire different administrators and bureaucracy, bureaucracy after bureaucracy, there's new rules and regulations. And I kind of think that, that to a certain degree that, you know, it helps the students, but to a certain degree it does not. And I think what it does is that, um, you know colleges and universities started to get in the middle of curriculum and what's taught in the classroom, and I think that's a major issue. I mean, for you know colleges that are liberal, like USC, and as a liberal student, I, I have empathy for, for students who are conservative, right, and who, who feel afraid at times to express their opinions and beliefs. And I think that that's something that we need to address if we're going to, you know, build bridges is is understanding and not to, you know, if we disagree with someone, how can we disagree in a civil way? And I think we should have more classes, specifically in liberal arts that, you know, teach us dialogue and how to disagree as opposed to just learning about one uh, way of thinking or or the other. Um, So I definitely agree with you on that, but I think-
1: Well, yeah, I- I would hope my discipline should be good at that. Because we have so many different philosophical points of view that have come out in history and there are so many uh, points of view to be presented. Now, anybody who spends his life doing philosophy as a law will have his own conception of the things that work best and the things that don't. And that's fine, that's, that's how it ought to be. Uh, but, You really have to have a sense that once you've gone through these courses, you can state your positions intelligibly, honestly, and argue, see where other people are coming from, give them your best arguments, listen to theirs. If you're not learning that, then I'm afraid it's a waste of time.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, w- I want to ask you uh, some of, of a more broader uh, general question, just a more philosophical question in a sense. <laughs> and um, it's regarding what uh, Matt was talking about. And it was, you know, people are, are getting spoon fed information. Um, we got Fox News, CNN. Um, it's all about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm listening to Fox News. I'm on their side. And 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 anything that's uh, against uh, this information is blasphemy or is wrong right and people are not are not just uh, understanding how to how to process information and even just uh, go through with it and kind of analyze it for themselves to make their decisions for themselves you know on a philosophical level how how, how do you think uh, is this like a human thing where where we're we're just you know it's it's better to pick sides and just go with the story or is it more uh that it's a generational thing or that we're doing right now uh you know I it, think it's
1: it's a, more of a generational thing that we're doing right now, mm-hmm. but of course it's not as if it's never been done before uh, it certainly has now there is uh, an approach in political philosophy. Um, by a philosopher I knew, he recently died, died last year, his name is Jerry Gauss, he was at the University of Arizona, he wrote a book for Princeton University Press called The Tyranny of the Ideal. And a great deal of political philosophy throughout history has been trying to articulate an ideal society. And his message was forget about it. start with the society you're in try to find out as much about it as you can develop some hypotheses about the institutions in it how they're connected to each other and piecemeal start considering what would count as an improvement that would contribute to the value of the society as a whole and let different people contend and develop their own models and if you read that book then what you're thinking is what we need to well one thing that, that seems to work is if you have a society of people say it's the four of us and we have different conceptions of the good we're not completely different from each other but we have different perspectives and somewhat different values and so on and we have to somehow be willing to articulate our ideas to others give our arguments and then find a compromise solution that may not be the first choice of any one of us but the solution we get is for each one of us better than the status quo and we have to find a way okay let's agree with that and now let's see how this change changes other aspects of our relationship and we go on in this way making incremental progress by each of us has a systematic view each of us is willing to compromise aspects of it and we have the faith each each one of the four of us might have the faith you know what I bet if we keep doing this for a period of years we'll do better than if any one of us were to develop his own theory and follow that through. Because even when I'm disagreeing with you, I think you may have something I'm missing. And so I never want to shut you out. I want, I want to find ways to compromise with you. I'm not giving up my own values. <laughs> but. If we can do that in our institutions, we can make progress. But now it's easier to think about that with four of us than it is with uh, 330 million of us. Uh, So that's one of the reasons I like the idea of getting uh, back to state governments and even local governments, even though those governments have not been great in the past either. But they might be more amenable to change. But the reason I focus on college is because the people who think about these things and who go into government at a variety of different levels, if they start thinking in these terms, then we might get institutions that value this kind of interaction that I just sketched, and we can start our way back.
3: Yeah, you know. I definitely agree with you. I think everybody has their own view, but I think the hard part is the compromise. I feel like in our age, people are not willing to make that compromise, uh, to make the incremental uh changes. Um, and maybe that's, you know, as Matt said, due to uh media pluralism, you know, people are just uh saying that side's entire argument's wrong, even though there might be, you know, hints of truth to that argument. Uh but, yeah, you know, and you miss a lot if, if you're just always making an all-or-nothing decision. Right, right, and me, the media might be forcing that upon uh, a lot of the American people. So.
1: And we talk about the media, and what is this media? Those are internet, sometimes national, sometimes international organizations. They op- operate at a very high level of abstraction, very far from the daily lives of, of all of us. I think we gotta find local media. We gotta find local ways of interacting. Um, And it's not think globally, act locally. It's think locally, act locally.
0: Yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. I think also, like you said about local power, I believe in the power of local newspapers, and that needs to be revived.
1: Oh, God, yes.
0: I mean, local journalism is dying, and that's, you know. It sure is. It's it's very sad because local journalism used to be something that everybody agreed. Nobody thought it had a bias, right? They gave it to you like it is, and we respect the local journalists, and I think – I don't know I, I think the government should do more a better job of subsidizing it. maybe state governments can do it, or you know uh, counties can, but I, I don't see the business model of local journalism surviving, so I think it, it has to become some sort of a government supported entity because I really do think we we need to revive it.
1: You know if we could get Zuckerberg and Bloomberg and a few of these others they they could have enough resources to put money in that now. I don't think that's what they're interested in. Uh, but there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of money out there. And if it were put to the right use, and it's not just a matter of buying things. I mean, but still, you've got to start small and, 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 and be willing to live with that. You think, I'm not going to change the world. Do you know that? I want to change this little corner of it. I want to be involved with others who do.
0: Right. I think I do want. To, I want. I want to touch on something that I think we haven't yet, and I think it's 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 a little important because uh, going back to like you know what you what Jenish was saying and what you've been saying in terms of, and I think all of us four of us agree that we need to do a better job of understanding the position of others, right? Not just you know yeah. uh, label is put each other in boxes, because I think once we put people in boxes, that's when we lose it. So in understanding your view, you know, you, you in 2016, you and other philosophers actually signed on a letter supporting the of Donald Trump. And I'm really interested by that. You know, you received a lot of criticism, right? I mean, you teach at USC, it's a liberal campus. So, uh, and, and obviously, I, I want to understand a lot of people, you know, have this view of this typical Trump supporter, right? I mean, when you imagine someone who is supporting Trump, you don't imagine an MIT graduated you know, <laughs> world-renowned philosopher like you, right? And why, For it's, it's kind of a two-part question, but first, why? What do, you, what do you think, what do you find appealing about Donald Trump? And second, why do you think that there is this misconception of the Trump supporter? Do you think there's any truth to that?
1: Well, I, I, I think... Uh, I I thought both parties in the United States were failing. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought there was very little hope within the Democratic Party of getting somebody who would turn it around because they had become kind of lockstep and ideological. The Republican Party was still just a, a coalition of people, of a variety of views, and they would sometimes do this and sometimes do that. But our politics was so polarized that there was no other Republican who could fight the battles that needed to be fought, I thought. And um, that is what appealed to me. Now, at first I thought he was too much of a dirty fighter um, because I was favoring some other candidates first and he blew them away uh, in ways that I thought were Well, not entirely on the up and up, Um, but I thought the man has energy. He does seem to be attracting the right kind of people. Like I say, I think middle-class and working-class people have not gotten a good deal in the past four decades. (laughs) And he seemed to be speaking to them. (laughs) And I thought that nobody else really was. The other thing is, he had this view, he didn't have the typical Republican view of free trade and it doesn't matter who gets out of work because of that and there's going to be, you know, it's going to lift the whole world up together. I didn't think that, I didn't think he, he didn't wanna do that and I liked that he didn't wanna do it. The other thing was, he was a critic of our constant involvement in foreign wars. Uh, And Look, the American people do not want to be involved everywhere. They do not want to be the world's policemen. Now, there may not be any other good policemen out there, but we weren't the greatest policemen either. Uh, So all of those things I thought were perfectly legitimate issues. But I thought that they needed somebody who would just go tooth and nail. So he did. Uh, And I think for the first two, three years, the results were good.
0: Do you, and and just a quick follow-up on that. um, Like you said, I I, I mean, I think on both sides of the political aisle, there's kind of a growing sense of agreement that the, to re-examine the role of the United States in foreign affairs, right? And and like I said before about the the effects of, of trade deals, but after four years of Trump, Um, Do you think he did more good for the country or bad, especially after the January 6th insurrection that happened?
1: I mean, oh, well, yeah. I mean, I don't think it was an insurrection because I think an insurrection is an attempt to overthrow the government by violent means. And none of the people who were arrested even were armed inside the Capitol. So I think that's an example of a misuse of language to shut down discussion uh More than to open up discussion.
0: Okay, well, I I have to touch base on that point again. I mean, okay, listen I mean, I, I'm trying to understand your perspective here. <laughs> to me, it, like you said, an insurrection is people going in with the intention of overthrowing the government. I mean, we all saw the videos of of you know supporters destroying uh, you know uh, you know the Capitol building essentially, you know, barging their way through. I mean, they had. Uh, they used violent language. Obviously, some of them were not armed, but
1: no, no, none of them were armed. None of the people who were arrested were armed.
0: But, but still, like their, their intention was to overthrow the government. I mean, had let's no, say-
1: you're not going to go into the government and think you're going to overthrow the government if you don't even have, uh, you don't even have a firearm on you. My God!
0: But they were That's saying idiotic. they were saying they hang my pants. I mean, they were saying all those things. People had well,
1: oh yeah, look- people say bad stuff. They do say bad stuff. But but here's what
0: I don't get, Professor. And, and I'm really generally trying to understand your perspective here. If let's say Barack Obama was in power, right? And he would have done and his supporters would have done this. Do you think you would have had the same response here? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, if you I, I disagree with <laughs> not calling this an insurrection, because what I think that does is that lowers the bar. I mean, I come like, I'll I'll tell you this. The
1: bar was pretty much lowered with um, the whole Russiagate thing.
0: (laughs) I mean, you think, so listen, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think (laughs) here's my perspective on this, right? I mean, I come from a country, Pakistan, right? And it's basically a banana republic where the most important element that's destroyed the country is nobody respects election integrity. And everybody thinks that the other side stole the election. And I think Donald Trump really kind of is responsible for destroying election, the, bringing up this idea of election integrity, because we don't have any voter fraud in the country systemic. There's no evidence of that. Uh, you know, Bill Barr concluded that there was no evidence. Was no,
1: I, I disagree with you. I think there is evidence. And I think when people say there's no evidence, they're saying there's no proof. But there can be proof, there can be evidence which falls short of proof. And I think that's where we are today.
0: But, but, Professor, here's the thing: I need to push back against you on this little point here. There was so many different investigations done by state governments. The state government very
1: few, actually, and there, and some of them are are, are continuing. And um, some of the audits that are continuing should continue. So let's let's see what, what turns up.
0: Well, listen, here's the Arizona audit to me is, is very comical. I mean, I don't think they're going to find any, but I think we'll disagree. I don't think we'll-, we'll...
1: Fine, if they don't find any something. all the better. Then we'll, then that that will be settled, but let it go forward. No, I'm all for open investigations.
0: That's fine. Well,
1: I... yeah, but, but uh, the other side, the Democratic Party is, and uh, the Department of Justice is opposing it. They're not saying, let it go forward. They're well, saying, no.
0: I mean, they have a reason to say. I mean, it's been now eight months of constant back and forth on this. I mean, Republican administration-
1: You know how long legal issues take to resolve? They take a long time.
0: Sure, I mean, I mean, but the thing is, this is kind of just, if you find the evidence, you present it and nobody's found the evidence yet. I mean, I, I think we'll disagree on this point, but that's fine, but I think I do, I wanna ask you and I, and I don't wanna spend too much time on this, but I wanna ask you, about, you know, going back to my point about personality, do you genuinely think that Donald Trump didn't do any harm to our democratic institutions? I mean, you know, he, he criticized the FBI, the CIA, and obviously, well, I
1: think the FBI was seriously deficient.
0: Right. But but my point is that, he, you know,
1: my son was in the FBI for a part of that time.
0: Right. But do you think that his some of his you know criticism of our democratic institutions his his insulting of just you know democratic principles was was good for the country do you place any blame on him for that
1: i don't i don't i'm not aware of democratic principles which he insulted
0: i mean this idea of the freedom of the press i mean he was very much against that i mean what wait a, a
1: minute Was he the one who stopped the reporting on um, Hunter Biden's laptop?
0: Well, no. Listen, I, I I am the type of liberal who will say we need to investigate everything that that. I mean, Hunter Biden seems like a very, you know, fishy person. What he's done is just terrible. I mean, he's he's used nepotism to its full extent, right? He's he's an incompetent person. I agree with you on that. But uh, I, I mean, he's a former drug addict as well. So I have some sympathies for him in that regard. But but, Professor, I mean, like he destroyed this whole idea of an independent free press. I mean, he attacked
1: reporters Tough questions. I he mean, criticized the press. He, it's I mean, fine to yeah. criticize the press. It's fine for the cr- press to criticize politicians. It, it's absolutely. Was but, there some law passed? It
0: wasn't. I agree
1: with you on that. But
0: I think the president <laughs> had a moral responsibility, right, to... Be uphold those conventional principles, don't you think?
1: I think he was okay. He had his point of view, he expressed it. Other people expressed theirs. He, I don't think he, he's impolite, okay, he's impolite.
0: I think, okay, <laughs> I think you're being very leading on him and that's all right. I mean, I, I don't want to <laughs> stretch those questions out. But my last question on this, on this subject is, you know, on a, on a very serious and fundamental level, Do you think four years of Trump uh, after and this includes the COVID crisis, was the country better off when when Trump left or as a whole, how do you assess his whole entire administration, all four years?
1: I think for the first three, it was much better off. And I think after COVID. um, It went down the drain.
0: Okay, gotcha. I think. Yeah, I think. there, There is a fundamental argument to be made that the first two years, you know, produce economic productivity and like you said about The medium wages going up, although I don't really attribute that to Trump as much, but I think I think again like I really have to emphasize my point about personality and being in politics for the right reasons, I think because he was in it for the wrong reasons, in my opinion, he 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 mishandled COVID because he again perceived of these national problems. The COVID was basically a pandemic, an entire war, as something to further his own candidacy in 2020. And he kind of failed to recognize that he's a president for the entire country, not just the states that he voted for. And I think the Republican Party, if they use some of his principles, right of you know helping the working class and others and re-examining the U.S. Role in form you see, apparently.
1: that's a big step for the Republican Party.
0: Absolutely. I think there's
1: that's because they had never done done that.
0: I think we're in the middle of a very big shift in politics where the Democratic Party has kind of, you know, switched gears. The Democratic Party was always the party of the working class and uh, the Republicans have made it that. So I give Trump some credit for that. Absolutely. He deserves it. But uh, I don't think he's the right guy. Do you think he's the right guy to, to lead the party? Well, in- I don't
1: know that he's the right guy. I think there are other people as well. And, but I do think we're in some, for a, some serious difficult years uh, until the next two elections. Um, and I think we could uh, face problems which make last year look pretty good.
0: Right. Well. i'll I'll let my
2: other two co-hosts jump in here (laughs) okay all right so i'm not one to push like political questions and i'm very much libertarian moderate myself um so i'd rather just kind of go back to a question of philosophy (laughs) so a question that i've always been very intrigued with is that okay it seems as if like i believe the statistic was about 90 percent of all philosophers uh, we're a, belie- a believer in religion um, in some way. They believe in a higher source of power. Uh, and I believe, I, and my, personally myself, I do believe there's a higher source of power. Uh, what do you think on that? Do you think that religion has to do with philosophy? And how do you think that's that's connected?
1: Yeah, I do think that religion and philosophy have been closely connected. And there's a reason for them uh, to be closely connected. And I do think, in terms of the quote, you made 90% think there's a higher power. I don't know what group that was. You know, the people I've spent my time with in philosophy for 40 years, um, very few, very few believe in any sort of higher power or God. And so, and I'm talking about the people at MIT, Stanford, Yale, Princeton, um, and that sort of place, even USC to to a large extent. as far as the connection goes. Sorry, just to interrupt you real quick. Um,
2: the 90%, that was as like a, a whole, right? From Socrates to Nietzsche. Oh, and, and then. I see. Now, yeah. I thought
1: you meant the people today who were doing philosophy.
2: No, sorry, as, as a whole. I should have been more clear.
1: Yeah, well, that, uh, there were more than 50%. Um, if you ever look at Mud Hall, Uh, The mud hall of philosophy, you will see a bunch of names going around the building, and they are meant to be philosophers, though they're not really all philosophers, but there are some names that are missing, and one name in particular is David Hume. And his, why isn't his name up there, he's really one of the great philosophers of all time, because the people who built mud hall were religious, and David Hume was a great opponent (laughs) of religion, Uh, but the other names up there, they were not opponents. So yes, in that respect, I can see where your percentage is coming from. What's the connection between the two? The connection between the two, I think has to do with what counts as living a good and meaningful life, Uh, finding a sense of purpose. Uh, And that's something that, for example, Socrates and Plato were very concerned with. Now, religion didn't play a big part in Plato or Socrates, but the idea of there being a sense of human purpose did. And then of course, in the Christian era, Christianity basically for a long time kind of took over that meaning and purpose part of life and philosophy kind of let that, that drift for a while and concentrated on other things. But now we're in an era which might well be, I don't know if it is yet, it might well be a post-Christian era. And the West, people in the West Each of us needs some sense of purpose in our lives. And we need to be able to answer some question of what do we really value and what do we really want from our life? How do we want to feel when it ends? How can we face the fact that it ends? This has always been a central part of both religion and philosophy. And I think it's a very natural connection. Now, if you read the journals in philosophy today, you don't see a lot of that. Uh, you see some, but you don't see very much. You see a lot of the more theoretical end of things, but it's still, it's still part of our concern.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, I noticed that philosophy is getting more uh, secular and less, uh, you know, about religion and purpose and kind of, uh, you know, on that, top, on that note, um, what do you think the future of philosophy is, you know, especially with uh, the advent of, you know, neuroscience, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, these large computational um, yeah. uh, innovations that we have? W- w- how do you see the future of uh, philosophy as a whole, you know, just with?
1: I see, I see um, philosophers in the future getting much more involved with each of those things you mentioned. Uh, to understand what they really are and perhaps what their limitations are as well. And in order to do that, philosophers are going to have to become as well educated in the theory of computation and neuroscience and all that as they are in philosophy. But I think you'll see that happening in the next 20 years.
0: Yeah. On that note, I think, It's a good segue to end the conversation. Uh, Professor Scott Soames, thanks so much for your time. Uh, again, I think this is really important to you know, have these discussions with people you disagree with. And uh, I think you provide a valuable uh, and- No, uh,
1: I enjoyed it. And I think, I think there should it'd be great if there were more things like this.